0: Good morning, church. Today's scripture is, scripture's reading is from the book of Genesis chapter one, verse 28, and chapter two, verses five through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every little thing that moves on the earth. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first river is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and Onyx, a stone, are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Tyler. Um, I'm one of the pastors here, and I learned something this week. Uh, I learned that preschool spring break is a thing. Uh, So if you know kind of Gabe and Allie, I bring greetings from Gabe, Allie, Israel, Ava, and Zion. Uh, But Ava was on preschool spring break this week. um, And so that's where even Gabe and Allie are today wrapping up. They did a little staycation. So I know they were doing all kinds of fun stuff around Kansas City. I got to make my maiden voyage to Science City uh, at Union Station where I learned so much, Uh, but also my all that kind of stuff. So anyway, they say, hello, I am happy to be here. And here's something else that I have discovered. Uh, I have learned in life that there is no shame in reading the instructions. Uh, Absolutely none. And for many years, I believed differently. I was one of those I'll do it myself kind of guys. I don't need some booklets help. Uh, I was confident that whatever was wrong with the TV, whatever was wrong with the universal remote, whatever was wrong with the microwave or refrigerator, I could figure out on my own without any help. And so I trusted my own ingenuity and resourcefulness. I was what experts call a uh, typical man. But after many, thanks Jill, after many missteps, uh, multiple trips to various hardware stores and a lot of wasted hours, I realized that the stuff I love, uh, the stuff that I value, the stuff that means most to me in this world, it all comes with instructions. Um, For example, I realized that look at some props. Uh, My phone came with instructions, right? So, there were instructions that came with my phone when I got it. My favorite shirt uh, also has some care instructions on a tag on the inside right. Uh, My 2002 Honda CRV instructions, right? Trusty, faithful, reliable. This book's been through a lot. Um, And even my own personal Bible. So, personal Bible here, my little journal stuff in it. It too has a preface with instructions, before we even get to the Genesis text, for how to approach and read this book well. So things come with instructions. Good things come with instructions. And instructions exist to make our lives easier. Instructions exist to make our lives easier, and things come with instructions so we'll know how to use them best, and the instructions are our friends, and there's absolutely no shame in reading them. All right? So for the past few weeks, we've been walking through the book of Genesis. We've been making our way through this foundational text of the Bible and learning, uh, wanting to discover what this first book and all of Scripture has to say about our 21st century lives. And if you've been with us for this journey, you might remember that so far in our study, we've said, "Okay, God created the universe from nothing," Um, and we've listened as God declared all that He made good. And then last week, when Gabe taught us, we discovered that God gave human beings a special role in His created order he crowned his creation with the stamp of his own image, male and female, God made us. That's where we've been thus far. And as we've worked our way through the Genesis text, this theme has emerged that our good God made this good world. And I want to suggest this morning that like any good creator, God made sure that his creation came with instructions. Don't miss this. God made our good world and he presented it to humans with specific instructions. And today we're going to take a look at the first instructions that God gave to humans. But before we get there, I want you to think about this question in your minds. Uh, If you were God, what instructions would you give human beings first? Today we're looking at God's first instructions to humans. If you were God, What instructions would you give to human beings first? What would you command? What would you incentivize or prohibit? What instructions would you give to human beings first? Just think about that for a bit. I imagine that my instructions uh, would be something like this, uh, don't hurt anybody, don't lie to anybody, don't you know, hit your sister, lie to your mom, don't take what isn't yours. Right? I mean, my instructions would probably be about behavior to human beings, and they'd probably all start with the word don't. I think if I made the first humans, if I were God, I would tell them, don't do this, don't say that, don't damage this. But I want to suggest this morning that that's actually not what happens in the Genesis account that we'll be reading today. Now, it certainly is true that God does give human beings some directions that begin with don't. We see that throughout scripture. And You say, Tyler, I know. I've heard that from religious people all my life. God made the world, so he gets to set the rules, and that's why I can't You know, cuss, smoke, or drink too much, right? You say, I've heard that. I've heard that my whole life. Perhaps that's how the Bible's been presented to you. Perhaps that's how the Genesis account has come across to you, uh, that an all-powerful God made a world so that he could micromanage these creatures that he placed in it. This morning's text, I think, says something different. And in fact, I would suggest it paints a picture of the world that is so much better Again, to be clear, God does say things about humans live like best, and he does say that there are some things that aren't good for us. There are things God says don't do, and we will talk about some of those things later in this Genesis series, but today I want to invite you to look at your Bible with fresh eyes, because you might be surprised to discover that the very first instructions God gives to humans, the very first imperatives that appear in the Bible, the very first commands that come our way from our creator God aren't don'ts, they're do's. They aren't don'ts, they're do's. And as we engage the Genesis text this morning, we're going to see that creator God's first instructions to human beings are actually inciting constructive commands to join him in his creative work. Before anything else, God instructs humans to join him in his creative work. God's first instructions to people, they aren't prohibitions their unique invitations to join him. And that is something entirely unique to the Christian faith. That is something entirely unique to the God of the Bible. And I believe it is remarkably good news. So, Let's look at these first instructions in detail. If you've got a Bible with you this morning, be it in print or digitally, would you find your way to Genesis 128? Uh, Genesis 128, still on page one of our community Bibles, we haven't moved on yet, Uh, but Genesis 128, there the text says, and God blessed them, meaning the humans that he made, the first humans, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's break this verse down a bit. Uh, Genesis 1.28, it begins with a stunning announcement. It declares that God blessed the human beings that he made. God blessed them. Now, in the ancient Near East, a blessing is a public declaration of favored status uh, it's, a, it's a claim that prosperity and success is going to follow you. To get a blessing from an elder or from a respected person in the community was a really big deal, an incredible honor. And so in Genesis 128, this verse begins with a declaration that God blessed the human beings that he made. He reaffirmed their favored status in his created order. He declared that prosperity and success and productivity and fruitfulness would be theirs collectively. So once more, God said that human beings are unique in my created order. He blessed them and called them special in his world. And then he said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it, right? Or have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. So be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it. These are the first instructions. These are the first verbs that appear in a, like, imperative sense, a command sense. The first instructions God gives to the humans that he's made? I mean, are these the instructions that you would have given? You I mean, notice they're not don'ts, they're, they're do's, they're divine directives to create and grow and flourish in the good world that God has created. Now, to understand all these kind of imperatives, I think it's important to note that the first three instructions in this list of five the be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth instructions. Those first three instructions here are actually repeated from verse 22, right? In verse 22, we can see that God instructs the fish and the birds and the puppies and the cats and all the other things, right? uh, He also instructs them to be fruitful and multiply and fill their domains. Do you see that there in the text? So this is big. It means other creatures in the created order have also been instructed to be fruitful, to increase, to fill the earth. This is like a directive God's giving to things he's made. He's saying, yeah, you should be like some vitality here. There's fruitfulness, there's productivity that exists. But only humans, this is what's unique in verse 28, only humans are instructed to subdue the earth and rule over it. Only humans are invited to exercise authority over the world that God has made. You see, the Genesis text, it suggests that kind of all, in some sense, all creatures that God has made have been invited to grow and flourish in the world that God's made, but only humans have been invited to rule over it because humans have been blessed by God. Again, in this way, humans are unique So these first five instructions to human beings from God, they're they're do's, not don'ts. They're constructive commands to join God in shaping the world that he's made. And these commands, they're like so sweeping. They're all encompassing in their scope and in their scale. And so to help us understand them better, I want to borrow some words from Nancy Piercy, who's a professor at Houston Baptist University. I think she does an exceptional job at defining these commands as they relate to human beings. And she writes, uh, "'Be fruitful and multiply,' means to develop the social world. So build families, churches, cities, governments, laws, right? So she's saying this fruitful multiply, it's, it's kind of in all dimensions of life. It's a, it's a vast, vast command to build up a social world. And then the second phrase, she says, this kind of subdue the earth and rule over it phrase, it means to harness the natural world, to plant crops, build bridges, design computers, compose music. She says this is kind of a, a comprehensive command to create with it, within the good world that God has made. In this passage, she said, it's sometime called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create cultures and build civilizations, nothing less. God's initial instructions to human, it was, they were big do's, they weren't don'ts. And if Nancy Piercy teaches us anything, it's that the dues are, are many. It's comprehensive in its scope and scale. Humans have been given all kinds of roles and responsibilities, and I would suggest that we need to understand these roles better. Specifically, I think we need a more robust understanding of the final two instructions that God gives to subdue and rule over the earth. And fortunately, I believe that God offers some guidance to us in that area within this text. Specifically, I think Genesis 2.15 provides helpful clarification about these last two expansive instructions. So let's turn our attention there now, Genesis 2.15. And as you're making your way there, let me set the stage a bit. So a few weeks ago, I told you that Genesis 1:3 through 2:3 was a long creation poem, right? Do you remember this? That this is some long poem that tells us a kind of fundamental truths about the creation of the world. So that's Genesis 1 through 3. So there's one account of the creation of the world. Beginning in Genesis 2, 3 and kind of continuing from there, there's another account of the creation of the world. A couple different perspectives at play telling the same story, the same truth of our good God who made the good world, one in more poetic form, one in a more narratival form. That what's... That's what starts in Genesis 2.4. So by the time we get to 2.15, uh, we hear God say, in the, in this Genesis 2 account, it really emphasizes the intimacy between God and the humans that he made. It emphasizes the connection between humans and the earth. So there's, again, slight different emphases, but the same story told in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. But by the time we get to 2.15, we hear that the Lord God took the man, or rather the human at this point, it's kind of the human that God made, this initial human, the Adam, it's talking about this connection with the earth, but God took the human that he made and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it so Genesis 2.15 says there are two specific reasons God placed the humans in the garden, two specific reasons God kind of brought these humans and put them on earth to fulfill. And these two purposes were to work the garden and to take care of it, or to cultivate it and keep it, to develop and maintain it, to improve it and protect it. Now here's the connection I'm wanting us to make this morning. This is like the big learning moment of the morning, I want to suggest that the purpose statements of Genesis 2:15—these explicit statements that the humans are in the garden to cultivate it and keep it, to protect it and improve it—that these purpose statements of 2:15 give us insight into how we're to fill those final two expansive commands of 1:28. Does this make sense? So, God, how are we supposed to rule the earth and subdue it and be over it? Well. Your purpose in the garden was to cultivate it and to keep it. How do we rule and exercise dominion? How are we supposed to be these people that are charged for caring for the whole earth? Well, you should protect creation and you should care for it. You should protect it and improve it. The explicit assertion that humans were put in Eden for a purpose to cultivate it and keep it helps us better understand how we are to fill our purpose of subduing and ruling over the earth. You see, when I read Genesis 2.15, I can't help but conclude that humans have been instructed to protect God's creation and improve God's creation, to protect God's creation and improve God's creation. That's what I can't help but see, and I want to help you to see it as well, so let's break this down a bit. We've been instructed to protect God's creation, to protect it right, to preserve what God has made, to guard it from destruction. I see that specifically in the Genesis 2.15 assertion that uh, that humans were placed in the garden to take care of it, to take care of it as it's translated in many of our English Bibles. The Hebrew verb here is the verb shamar, who also happens to be my mom's favorite actor on daytime television. Uh, I'm sorry, I could not resist. Tanya... Wherever you, I know you're listening, Mom, you're going to love this. She loves Shamar more. Um, but the specific Hebrew command is also Shamar, Shamar, Shamar. and it's a command to protect. It's a command to preserve. It's a command that I believe reinforces the goodness of God's creation, because you only protect something that you believe is good. You know, think about it this way. So I put uh, this case on my phone because I had to sell a kidney to buy it, right? And parents, uh, parents put their kids in car seats, and graduates put their diplomas in frames, and pirates put their treasures in chests. Uh, you only protect things that are good or beautiful or valuable. And in Genesis 2.15, God says one of humanity's purposes is to protect what he has made, to take care of it, to shamar it, right, to defend it and guard it. We have been instructed to protect God's creation, And God gives us this instruction to protect what he's made because he knows there's always a way to take a good thing and make it a bad thing, right? There's always a way to take something healthy and make it unhealthy. There's a way to ruin anything that's good or beautiful and lovely. And in fact, this is what humans wind up doing in Genesis 3, but we're going to get there in a few weeks. But at this stage in the game, God's saying, hey, protect what I've made. Be proactive about ensuring it's welfare and in ensuring that my created order is used wisely and rightly. I've given you this whole good world, God says, so protect it. Use what I've made responsibly. So care for God's good world. It is one of the initial roles and responsibilities that God gives humans to fulfill, and it's a Role and responsibility, I believe, that we've been invited to embrace. But what exactly does this look like for us um, in 2019? How are we to protect the world that God's made? I uh, will hear a few thoughts. First, I'd like to submit that God's people are supposed to care about the products we use and the habits that we cultivate, not because it's trendy or not trendy. Uh, not because it's in vogue or out of vogue, but because God instructs us to do so, right? God has instructed us to care about the world that he's made. So this means we might use some shopping bags and not others. We might go to the grocery and not that, not because it's all the rage, not because it's what everyone's doing uh, that's trendy or cultural right now, but because of our love for God and our love for the world that he's made, okay? Now, there are all kinds of specifics under that, but I think that's a, a big banner headline we can get behind from this text, that, okay, I'm, if I'm following God and if I respect the first commands he's given, I should have some kind of care for the world that he has made. And my second thought is this, and it's a little more complex. I'd like to suggest that, you know, what some people call maybe environmentalism, others call creation care, because that's the word that gets used in this church a little more. Um, it's neither a dirty word nor the total gospel. So saying we're supposed to care about the earth, it's neither like some dirty word in churches so we can never ever talk about environmentalism, nor is it the total gospel, as if creation care is what saves us, right? I want to say it's neither of those. Um, it's not something that Christians need to approach with like total skepticism um, and not something we need to embrace with overblown hopefulness, but rather I think it's something we need to navigate with wisdom because this much seems true to me. Uh, God has instructed humans to use the world he's made And not all use is misuse. I mean, we are free to use and create within the world that God has made, uh, but some use is. And so what I think the invitation is by God to humans is to use God's wisdom in determining what uses of his creation are appropriate and what uses of his creation are indeed misuse. I think this is why God's given us really great minds and why he's invited us with these brilliant minds to protect his creation. We're supposed to think about, hey, God, you've invited us to use all that exists in this created order, uh, to be creative, to care for one another, to promote human flourishing, to do all these different things you've given us to do. We We can use the world you've made. Not all uses are misuses, but some are. So Lord, give us wisdom in determining what's an appropriate use and what is a misuse. I mean, we've been entrusted with God's world, invited to rule over it and protect it. And so I believe that Genesis 2.15, it's an invitation for us to see God's wisdom in learning how we can care for and steward his good world well. We need to protect God's world and do so wisely. As I was thinking about this this week, a kind of recent development in business leadership literature uh, kept coming to my mind, and I want to I share it here. Did you know that some organizations have started to suggest that uh, what's really good for businesses, if businesses are thinking about, OK, what's the bottom line? Uh, some authors have said, actually, businesses need to start thinking about what's been called a triple bottom line. Have you heard about this triple bottom line? Uh, it, someone says that it was coined in 1994. That's where this phrase came from. Uh, but triple bottom line. Means means that there's three parts to a healthy business's bottom line, uh, those parts being the people, the planet, and profit. And these kind of three Ps stand for broader domains. So people, meaning organizations should care about the people they employ and kind of how they're using their human resources well. Planet meaning kind of supply chain, any natural resources or other resources, how are you using your resources well? And then of course profit, how are you maximizing profit for your shareholders or your investors or owners or whatever the particular structure is, right? People, planet, profit, this is a triple bottom line kind of system that some economists have said, hey, this is a much better uh, paradigm, a way for businesses to think about success. Uh, How are you doing as it relates to the triple bottom line? And what I love about this idea is that it paints a more comprehensive picture of what success means for an organization. And this kind of comprehensive thinking, I think, is precisely the kind of creative work that I believe God invites humans to embrace in Genesis 1 and 2 when he says, hey, protect and steward my planet. Right? He wants us to be thinking comprehensively. Now, I'll be the first to admit that not every business Who says that they care about people, planet, and profit, actually care about all three, or actually care about all three in good balance, okay? I know that these can be buzz phrases you put up there to kind of, I don't know, get people off your back and do whatever you want to do anyway, but I think that those who follow Jesus have been invited to sincerely care about all three elements. How is what I'm doing in the world affecting those around me and the resources that we have, and kind of this call to be productive and fruitful in the world, how am I doing comprehensively I think that's a call to wisdom and a call to kind of comprehensive thoughtfulness that is totally found here in this text. Because God's instructed us to protect the world he's made, we should on a personal level and then on a broader level be thoughtful about how our habits and behaviors impact God's creation. All right, so let's let's embrace that responsibility. Let's repent of ways we've misused or devalued creation. Let's be thoughtful about our habits and practices and let's live into God's instruction to protect his world, okay, to rule over it with care and responsibility. I think this is apparent from Genesis 2.15 when God invites us to take care of or protect the world he's made, but this is only one component, of kind of the compa- the commands that exist in Genesis 2.15. So protect what God's made. But there's a second part as well. 2.15 also says humans were placed in the garden not just to take care of it, right, or to protect it, but to cultivate it as well, to cultivate it. Uh, this is why I'm convinced that we've also been instructed to improve God's creation, uh, to improve God's creation, to innovate within it, to create within it, to derive even more beauty and productivity from all that God his made. Now, the specific Hebrew command here is the word abad, and abad means to work or serve or to develop. And I think this command highlights all the potential fruitfulness that exists in creation. You see, God made a good world, uh, but the good world that he made wasn't filled with finished products. Uh, I would say God made a good world with, yes, some finished products in terms of, like there's some plants and animals, but also a whole lot of ingredients for humans to continue to create and make future good things. Um, why do I think that? Well, do you remember the... Conf- kind of confusing passage, I'll call it, that Carolyn read a few moments ago, verses 10 through 14 about all these rivers, and there's some gold, and there's some onyx, and there's all this stuff there. Uh, These verses are sometimes confusing, but what I think they're doing here in this text is highlighting the immense fruitfulness and abundance of creation. Right? This is the author's way of saying that, hey, when God made this world, there's these rivers and there's gold here and there's onyx here and there's this resource there and it's rich here and there's these other minerals and there's some stuff you can make over there. I mean, it's just saying God's world is brimming with possibilities for creativity. There's all kinds of the ingredients that you need available. And so God's saying, hey, look what I've made humans and rejoice and celebrate with it and now make it better. You know, improve it, create within it, and this should take our breath away. I mean, this would be like Van Gogh calling me up and saying, hey, Tyler, why don't you finish this masterpiece, you know? Or like J.K. Rowling sending an email and saying, hey, why don't you take this next chapter, you know? Uh, this would be, I'm about to use a sports metaphor, tell me if I use it well. This would be like Patrick Mahomes inviting me on the field and saying, Tyler, why don't you make this catch? <laughs> thank you, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. All things to all people. Uh, Except, except it's God, right? Except it's God. And it's God inviting you and God inviting me to embrace all the things that he's put on this planet that we can use and do productive things with and saying, okay, take what I've made and now make it better. It's your turn now. Let's see what you can do with it. I mean, think about it this way. God doesn't give Adam and Eve a food court in Eden. He could have, but he doesn't. Instead, he gives them every raw material, every plant and tree and spice to enjoy and use. He gives humans all the ingredients, and then we make Chipotle. (laughs) (laughs) That's true, right? We did. And this is incredible. This is absolutely incredible. This should make our draws drop because God's invitation to create in his good world means that God doesn't hog his masterpiece. It means God isn't maniacally self-centered or like grossly egotistic. You see, when I create, I want everyone to admire what I've made and to see it as a result of my unique genius. I want affirmation. I want approval. I don't want collaborators. You know, I want affirmation and applause. And maybe that's just me, or maybe that's you too. I think this is such a a human thing when we create. As one who's edited books for some other folks, it's painful for authors. You probably know this. It is painful when you want to cut things and reshape things and do stuff different to good work folks have made. But that's what God does. That's how God approaches us. He said, here's what I've made as a masterpiece, and I'm not hogging it. And in one sense, your minds are blown because it's more creative than anything you could do. You couldn't make a universe human being. So in one sense, your minds are blown. In another sense, though, I'm not hogging it. And I'm not saying it's, it's all just mine and you can't touch it and all you can do is look at me and admire me. I'm also saying you create within it. God instructs us to improve upon his creation and create within it. And he calls our work to create within his world worship. He calls it worship. Worship. You see this Hebrew word Abob," the word again that we said was in Genesis 2:15. It's used throughout the Old Testament to speak of both work and worship. So for example, it's used to describe the backbreaking work that the Israelites do in Egypt when they're under Pharaoh's rule, um, but it's also used to refer to the ceremonial worship rites that occur when Solomon dedicates the temple. So it's used to speak both of like heavy labor, hard work and worship or sacred rites. And scholars insist that the multiple ways in which this word is used shows the undeniable link between our work in the world, using what God has given us to create uh, beautiful things and better things, and worship. There's a connection, people say, between God's instruction to improve the world that he's made and our worship of him as our creator. You see, when we work to improve God's creation, when we use the material that he's given us to make good food or good medicine or good furniture or good housing, when we do that, we join God in his creative work. And he receives our creative efforts as worship. He delights in what we do and delights in what we make. And he embraces it all as a spiritual act of worship that echoes his brilliance and his creativity. You see what's most remarkable to me about this morning's text i've got to spend a lot of time in it over the last few weeks what's remarkable to me about this is i believe that this is the first time in all of scripture right all this recorded documentation and testimony about who god is and what god's like this is the first time in all of scripture that god gives the invitation to join him here in genesis 1 and 2 god says join me Right? Join me. Join me in making this world that I've made a beautiful and better place. You know, join me in ruling and caring for this world that I've created. Join me. Join me. And this is what is specifically unique to the Christian faith. This is what I absolutely love about the God of the Bible, this unique claim that our God, from the very beginning, has been inviting the humans he's made to join him, to join him. This invitation to relationship and this invitation to productive work together, it is entirely unique in all worldviews, unique to the Christian faith. Join me, join me, join me. This is God's call to embrace the creative life-giving work that he's prepared for us to do in advance. God's saying, hey, do the good works that I've made for you. Join me. Be a blessing to others. Join me. Join me. Join me. And this divine invitation is extended first here in Genesis 1:28, but it echoes all the way through Scripture from the very beginning to the very end. Our God is a God who says, join me. Join me. Join me. It was God's invitation to the first humans, and it's God's invitation to you today. You see, there is absolutely no shame in reading the instructions, none at all. And this morning, we've seen the first instructions that God gives to human beings. And these instructions, they aren't don'ts, they're do's. They're exciting, constructive commands to join him in his good work, to join him in his life-giving, hope-creating, people-loving, creation-caring, world-changing work. And you see, I have no idea what this past week has been like for you. Uh, I don't know if you've been bored or frustrated. I don't know if you've been overwhelmed or overworked. I don't know if the past seven days have been great or if they've been difficult. I don't know all the particular details of your life, but I do know this. God has invited you to join him. He's invited you to join him relationally, right? This is a key verse at the center of Christ's community. Come to me, all who are weary and heaven laden, I'll give you rest. Join me in the rest of my yoke. Learn life from me, says God. There's an invitation to join him, and there's an invitation to join him in good work that blesses others. To join him in praying for others, sharing a meal with others, right, inviting others into your home. God's saying, join me, join me, join me in the good work that I am doing to redeem and restore the world. These are my instructions to you. And when you do this work, God says, your life will be better. When you join me in this good work, God says, you will feel my blessing and my favor. Because instructions exist to make our lives easier. Instructions exist to make our lives better, and God's instructions to join him in the work of protecting his creation and cultivating it and improving on it and using it well, this is the kind of instruction that when we take him up on this offer makes our lives better and causes us to flourish and blesses those around us. I mean, when you join God in his work by making a great product or caring for someone who needs it, or saying a prayer or making a connection or answering a question, when you do that, God smiles and so will you because you are living right into the design that he's made for human beings. You are taking him up on the initial instructions that he gave to those he created. So may we be the kind of people who take him up on that invitation, the kind of people who do join God in protecting and caring for in improving the world that he's given us. May we be those kind of people, church. Okay. Will you join me in prayer? Oh, Lord, we are um, just astounded by the great invitation that you have given us, God. An invitation uh, to join you is just incredible and astounding and staggers the mind that you, perfect God, made a good world Um, and invited us to have a part in in making it better and improving it and caring for it and stewarding it and protecting it. Uh, It it is absolutely astounding. And so, God, may you uh, help us in that task. May you give us wisdom for how we can care for your world well and protect it well. And may you give us uh, the energy and courage and boldness uh, to join you in your work of causing more flourishing I and mean, more good for humans and more good for all the created order and more good for our cities and our communities and our neighbors. So may we join you in that task of redeeming this world and making it a fuller, vibrant, better place. It's what you're about and what you're doing, Lord. We want to be about it as well. So would you uh, inspire us and lead us and encourage us in that work? We ask all these things humbly in your powerful name. Amen.